All right. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, if you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. Glad you are with us. Uh, as always, it's good to be with you this morning. Uh, we spent the first three weeks of this year, of 2020, uh, taking a look at our vision here at River City. Andy talked about that this morning, how our vision is about growing in the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches. And so uh, our goal in taking three weeks to just cover each one of those together was just in order to help get us all on the same page about where we're going and, and what God is doing and, and how we're going to get there and what it looks like for us to be a part of that together. And, and so I, I trust that that was helpful for you as you help to understand a little bit more about what River City is all about and where we're going and what it looks to be a part of that. Um, and I trust as well it was helpful for our church as we continue to grow in our unity together around those things and in being shaped by those values together. And so hopefully this morning you are here and you're excited about what God is doing and where he's leading us and what it looks like to follow him into that this morning. Uh, and I know that I am and being a part of that here at River City. And so we're glad that you would join us this morning. Uh, I'm also excited this morning because we are launching a brand new sermon series together uh, this morning in the book of Revelation. Buckle up, right? It's bound to be a fun one. Now, to be honest, when, when, when most of you, when you think about the book of Revelation, how many of you think like, that sounds interesting, also a bit overwhelming, right? Like, I don't really know how to think about that or what's going on there. And, you know, and you're not alone. See, Revelation's a book that has often baffled or mystified or intrigued Christians across the century. There's all this talk about, about raptures and bowls of judgment and beasts and false prophets and the four horsemen and poison locusts and human eating dragons and the number 666 and, and all of this stuff. And you're just like, I don't even know what's where to begin with any of this. Well, before we get going, before you get too worried or too excited for that matter, uh, we're not really going to cover most of any of that, right? Uh, and that's because instead of diving through the whole book, we are actually going to spend our time the next eight weeks taking a look at just the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And, uh, and the bulk of which consists of seven short letters, seven letters, each of which are written to a local church body in the province uh, of Asia, which is now in Western Turkey. Each of them are seven individual letters, each one written to a different church, different local church in this, in this region. And unfortunately, things were not going well for these churches. Things were not going well. Each of them were being threatened to various degrees by false teaching, by temptation towards idolatry and, and immorality, by spiritual complacency, by apathy, and almost all of them by varying forms of intensifying persecution, uh, which was about to get much, much worse. And on top of it, all of the original apostles at this point have been martyred, except for the apostle John, who, who instead of being uh, killed, they tried to boil him alive. He didn't die. So they're like, well, I guess we'll just ex exile you to this random desolate island in the middle of the Mediterranean, right? And so all these churches leaders and all of their, like the original the founders of these churches and all this kind of stuff, right? They're, they're not there. And so it's in the midst of this circumstances, in the midst of these circumstances that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus comes and he appears in glory to the Apostle John, probably his closest earthly friend. And he has a crucial message for his church, a critical message for his church. It's a message meant, that is meant to comfort them and meant to strengthen them. It's a message meant to, to encourage them and to empower them towards faithful endurance and steadfast obedience until the very end, until King Jesus returns. But it was also a message that was meant to correct them 
It's a message that was meant to, to rebuke them, to, to call them to repentance from idolatry and immorality and complacency. You see, in the message that the risen, ruling, reigning King Jesus comes to bring his churches was a message that they desperately needed to hear. You see, but it's one that you and I need to hear just as much as the original audience did. See, it's in fact, it's a message that every church in every age needs to hear and to pay attention to. You see, while we might not be facing the exact same kinds of persecution that they were, we are certainly confronted with many, if not all, of the other problems that these churches faced. False teaching creeping into the church and, and leading people away from the truth, whether that's temptation to succumb to societal norms of idolatry and immorality, or whether it's just spiritual apathy and complacency instead of a commitment to the king and, his, and to his purposes as, as his people wait for his great kingly return. So as we begin our study in Revelation and Jesus' seven letters to the seven churches this morning, as we begin in chapter one, what I want to show you this morning is that if we're going to respond rightly to Jesus' timeless words for his church, if we're, if we're going to be characterized by a faithful endurance and a steadfast obedience until he returns, then it must begin by seeing him for who he really is. It must begin by seeing him for who he really is. You see, he's not just the author of these seven letters. He is, in fact, the true and ultimate author of all things. And it's only when we will see him as such that we'll be able to respond rightly to his words. And so to that end, let's pray as we dive into God's word this morning. King Jesus, we come before you this morning and we humbly say we really need you. God, I need you. I need you to empower me by your spirit to speak and teach with power and what is not just what is true, but, but what can change. God, and we need you to give us hearts that are able to respond rightly to your words. King Jesus, our default mode is not one of, of adherence to you and one of submission to you. It's one of self-sufficiency. And so, King Jesus, we need you to soften our hearts this morning to enable us to respond rightly to your good kingly words of life for us. And so, Jesus, we come in humility this morning asking that you would graciously, powerfully, God, speak through me and to us this morning, God, for our good, but more than anything we ask in Jesus, you would do it for your great and abiding glory in our church and in our world and in every age to come, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we, this morning, we are in the book of Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation, there's just one, chapter one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants and what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything that he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The apostle John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father, to be to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. For look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. For I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is come, the Almighty. And I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, I was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And in the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna, to Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and he said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look. I am alive. I live forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades right there for what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. It's the word of the Lord. See, this morning as we begin our study, it's really important. Everything hinges on who is speaking to us this morning. You see, who, who is telling you something? It changes everything about how you hear and how you respond to it, right? The, the words, uh, slow down, son, you're going over the speed limit. Those sound a lot different when they're coming from your mom uh, as when they do coming from a police officer who has recently pulled you over, don't they? They sound a lot different, and the way that you respond, it's different, right? The college, in college, the feedback that you got on your paper from your buddy at the writing center, or the feedback in red from your professor on your rough draft. You see, who is giving you the feedback? Who is speaking to you? It changes how you respond. When you're sick, the diagnosis that you get by Googling versus the diagnosis that you get when an actual doctor prescribes something for you, You see, it's different, and the way that you respond is different. You see, because who is speaking to you matters. Who tells you something matters, and the same is true here. You see, there are lots of epistles and lots of letters in the Bible written to the churches from Paul and Peter and John, the authors. They are all incredibly important, but there is only one place that there is a series of letters written directly from Jesus to his churches, and it is here in the book of Revelation And if we are going to respond rightly to the words in these seven letters, then we must understand 
who is speaking to us. You see, the word revelation, it, it literally means unveiling. The unveiling. You see, most of the time when people read the book of Revelation, they're primarily concerned with what is being revealed. What's going to happen? And when is it going to happen? And how is all this stuff going to work out? Or what does it all mean? But far more important than what is being revealed is who is being revealed. Far more important than the what is the who. You see, from the beginning to the end of the book of Revelation, it is all about Jesus. Verse, verse 1 begins the revelation from Jesus. Chapter 22, it ends with Jesus promising himself that he is coming again soon. And in our passage this morning, we get a vision of Jesus that might seem pretty different from the way that you have traditionally thought about him or the vision that you, that you might have of him when you think about him. But I need you to hear this morning, it is not a different Jesus we are looking at in the book of Revelation this morning. It's not a different version of him. Instead, of it is a fuller one, a truer one, a more complete one. You see, Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself becoming a man. But here this morning, we see him as he was and is. The risen, ruling, reigning, triumphant king of everything. Now, to be clear this morning, the vision that we see here of Jesus, fiery eyes, glowing face, sword coming out of his mouth, right, is not intended to be a literal picture of what he actually looks like. But I need you to hear this. It is indeed a literal picture of what he actually is like. It shows us who he is, his nature and his character, what is true about him. You see, and we need to see Jesus in this way this morning if we are going to respond rightly to him. And so the question is, what is Revelation 1 unveiling about the author of the seven letters to these seven churches? What is it about Jesus that we really need to see if we're going to be characterized by a faithful endurance and a steadfast obedience to him until he returns? Well, just a few things. There is far more here than we have time for this morning, and so uh, we just have to pick a few, right? And I think the, the few of the most important things this morning are this. The first thing I think that we must see about this Jesus is that he is indeed the sovereign Lord of all of history. He is the sovereign Lord of all of history. See, John introduces the true author of this book in verse 8. He says, for I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. In verse 17, Jesus says of himself, I am the first and the last. Verse 5, earlier on, refers to him as the ruler of the kings of the earth. You see, Revelation 1 introduces to us the author of the seven letters as the author of history itself. You see, in describing himself as the first and the last, as the alpha and the omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, see, Jesus is saying, I am at the beginning of history, and I am at the end of history, and I am the Lord of every second that lies between the beginning and the end. I was there when it started. I will be the last one standing when it finishes, and I am guiding all of it unto my purposes and my will. You see, you need to see this morning that God has a purpose and all of history, all things are being worked towards that purpose. And I need to be clear this morning, God is not the cause of evil or sin in this world. We live in a fallen world and the result of it is that lots of people do lots of terrible and horrible things. But what I am saying this morning is that Jesus promises that none of those situations, none of those things are outside of his control. 
He promises to use every single one of those situations and circumstances as a part of his perfect purposes and plan in our lives. The reality is that you and I often cannot see how that is working out. Our life history often kind of looks like the inside of a sweater or the back of a tapestry, which is to say a hot mess, right? There There are strings going everywhere. It looks like a mess. You can't tell what it is supposed to be or what it is supposed to look like. But one day you see you and I will see the other side of the garment. We will see it with God's perspective and we will see the beauty of the tapestry that he is weaving in the midst of the chaos. You see, nothing can stop him. Nothing can thwart him. Nothing can stop him from bringing about his purpose. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the one who was and who is and who always will be. You see, people cannot stop him and governments cannot stop him and armies cannot stop him and sin itself cannot stop him. Devil, the devil cannot stop him. Not even death can stop him. You see, and that brings us to the second thing we see highlighted about the author of these letters. You see, Jesus is not just the sovereign Lord of all of history. He is the victorious King of life. Verse 17 and 18 read this way. He comes to John. He says, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. You see, Jesus is alive. He conquered Satan and sin and death. You see, his death was not the end of the story, and his death is also not the end of the story of those whose hope is found in him. You see, Jesus is the victorious king of life. See, the whole book of Revelation is the story about how the devil is trying to overcome the church and overcome God's purposes, but how the church overcomes the devil and the world and sin and temptation and even death, not because of the church's strength, but because the church belongs belongs to Jesus himself, and he has already won the victory on our behalf. You see, but Jesus is not just alive. You see, he is intimately involved in building his church and the battles that they are fighting. See, the picture John gets of Jesus, right? The one, like a son of man, stands amidst the lampstands, among his churches, As we read each of these letters, what you will find is that he has a wildly specific word for each of these churches. He is not far off and distant. He is not removed from his church. He is not outside of time just waiting for things to work themselves out. He is the Lord of all history and he is alive and he is ruling and reigning and he is is presently and intensely involved in the building of his church. He stands in the midst of the churches, holding them in his hand as the victorious risen king in whom they can put their hope. You see, each of the seven letters we'll read ends with a promise, ends with a promise that is given always to the one who is victorious. You see, because when our hope is hidden in him, what these letters will often teach us is how to conquer instead of being conquered, how to triumph instead of being trampled, how to be an overcomer instead of being a succumber. You see, the king that is revealed, unveiled to us in Revelation 1, he is the sovereign lord of history. He is the victorious king of life. And third, he is the coming king of heaven. You see, the king is going to return 
He is coming back for real, not spiritually, not metaphorically, not existentially. The king is coming back personally, actually for real. Verse 7 is a prophecy looking forward to that day. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You see, the king is coming to rule and to reign in person. And when the king comes again, he will be coming in power and in glory See, the first time Jesus came, his first coming was in quietness and humility. I need you to hear this this morning. It will not be the same next time. Revelation 19 speaks of a a vision of the day that the king returned. It reads this way. John says, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse with a rider who is called faithful and true. With justice. He judges and wages war. His eyes are like a blazing fire. On his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations, for he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh is written the name King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You see, he is indeed the king who is coming to rule and reign all things. J.D. Greer, he sums it up this way. He says, the point of revelation is not to give you details for idle speculation about the second coming, but is instead in view of Jesus' imminent return to motivate us to go and to tell people about his first coming. You see, the king is coming. He is returning He is indeed the sovereign king of history, the victorious king of life, the coming king of heaven. But he is also, and some of you especially need me to remind you of this this morning, he is the beloved king of redemption. Verse 4 begins this way, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood who has made us to be a kingdom of priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. You see, he is the king who has loved his people and who has given himself for them so that they might be free. Free from sin, free from the penalty of sin, free from the power of sin in our everyday lives, and free from one day the presence of sin altogether. Free to be his people, a kingdom of priests, verse 4 says, a people who worship him and who lead others in the worship of him. Free no longer to live for ourselves, but instead to live for him who died and who raised a life again. You see, the picture John paints for us of Jesus who appeared to him is utterly glorious and altogether overwhelming. John, when he sees this Jesus, falls on his face as though dead. And the question this morning is, why? Why is Jesus appearing to his friend John this way? John John was his best friend on earth. In In the Gospel of John, he refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved So why, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of his exile on the island of Patmos, in the midst of all of the hurting and all of the situations, why is it that Jesus is coming to John in this glorious form? You'd think he would come as a friend to give his friend a hug and to come alongside him to encourage him. 
You see, but the reality is that that's not what John or these churches needed. You see, they were facing situations and circumstances that were utterly overwhelming. In the coming decades, Christians would be hunted down and murdered relentlessly, ongoingly. They would face all kinds of persecution and hardships and false teaching from from inside the church and from all over. They would be facing all kinds of things. And what they needed to see is a vision of a God who himself is utterly overwhelming. They needed a vision of a God who was bigger and stronger and more powerful than whatever it was that they were facing. A God in view of whom all other fears would be driven out. You see, over and over the Bible tells us about the goodness of fearing the Lord. Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is indeed the the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of right thinking and of right living You see, the problem is that we have trouble understanding that word fear because for us, it it just simply means to be afraid, to be scared of something. But that's not the whole picture. You see, in the original languages, the word for fear has, has overtones of awe and reverence and humble submission. Ultimately, that word fear in the Bible is about being, is getting at the idea of being overwhelmed by something to the point in which that is the thing that controls you. It's the thing which holds ultimate sway. See, and that's what John and these churches needed. And indeed, it is what you and I need as well. You see, the Jesus that John sees causes him to fall on his face as though he was dead, and yet Jesus comes to him in the midst of his fear, and he says, do not be afraid. See, that's the paradox of the Christian life, is it not? Right? It's learning to fear the right things so that you might not be afraid of everything else learning how to fear and at the same time to not be afraid, learning how to let go of the wrong fear and to embrace the right kind of fear. You see, Jesus knew that what John and these churches needed was to see him not simply as their savior and as their friend, but as the risen, ruling, reigning, triumphant, victorious Lord of all of history, the king of life, the king over death, the one who was indeed coming again to return to rule and reign and set all things right. And in showing himself to John this way and revealing himself to his church this way, Jesus is not only telling them of his great power and authority, he's reminding them of his death on their behalf for them, which secures their hope. He's reminding them that that Caesar is not in charge, that his kingdom is not the one in which will be brought about to fullness, that, that sickness and persecution and death and all those things do not hold the final word. He's speaking to his churches and his word is clear. He says, look at me. Look at my power. Look at my unquestionable control. Look at my love for you. Kevin DeYoung, I think, sums it up best when he says this way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, not because God is terrifying to us, but because God is terrifying and he is for us. He is strong and mighty and glorious. And he is on our side. So we need not be afraid. You see, this unveiled Jesus is the one you and I must see. We must see him for who he really is. 
And the question this morning as we begin our time in Revelation for you is simply this. What is it about this Jesus that you really need to see this morning? Maybe you are here this morning and you need to see him as the sovereign king and lord of all of history. The one who was and who is and who always will be the ruler of the kings of the earth and of the situations that you find yourself in. He is utterly in control of all things. He always has been and he always will be. His plans are unavoidable. His purposes are undefeatable. His future is inescapable. And so no matter what situation you find yourself in, in the uncertainty or in the hurt or in the pain or in the worry or in the fear, I need you to hear this morning, he is not unaware. He is not powerless. And more than anything, what you need to hear is that he is not finished. See, the promise and the hope that we have in God's word is not just is not simply that this life will get better it may not but is that there is waiting for those whose hope is in the risen ruling reigning king Jesus first peter 1:4 tells us an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade see the comfort of Jesus's words is rooted in the authority of his words the comfort that Jesus comes to bring his people in the midst of the chaos, it is inextricably linked to the great authority of his words. You see, when your friend tells you, when your friend comes alongside you in the midst of a hard situation and and they say, you know what, don't worry about it, it's going to work out, that feels good. It it is encouraging, but can we be honest with each other? Your your friend doesn't know if it's going to work out or not. And they don't have any authority to actually determine the outcome of that situation. Oh, but when King Jesus says, do not be afraid, there is an overwhelming peace. Because he is not simply a friend, not simply a good listener. He is the sovereign Lord of all of history and he makes it so. You can trust that in whatever situation, as Romans 8 teaches us, that God is able to work all things for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purposes. He is indeed the sovereign Lord of all of history in whom you can put your trust. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded that he is indeed the victorious king of life. Satan and sin do not win. Death is not the end. War does not have the final word, and hate does not have the final word, and sickness does not have the final word, and old age does not have the final word, and and death does not have the final word, and cancer does not have the final word. You see, Jesus does. He holds the keys to death and Hades. He holds the keys that unlocks death's door. He died, but behold, he lives forever and ever, and so do those whose faith is founded. See, you do not need to fear the outcome or the end of this life. Kevin DeYoung, I think so helpfully again, he writes it this way. Let us never forget that a flat line is not the end of the story for those who follow Jesus. And though we weep and though we grieve, we know for those who die in the Lord that in the next moment, there is a moment in which they have never been more alive. See, this vision of Jesus 
the one who had the keys of death and Hades in his hands, the conquering king of life, the overcomer of death. It fueled the faithful lives and the willing deaths of countless Christians who heard these words spoken to them. See, Christians were hunted down and slaughtered, fed to lions, torn apart by wild horses, impaled on stakes and set on fire, boiled alive because they would not worship the emperor as king. They would not worship anyone or anything other than Jesus as king. And when the Romans watched Christians face death with such confidence and peace, and in many cases even joy, they were desperate to find what would give someone that kind of life. Maybe that's the kind of hope that you need to be reminded of this morning, that the ruling, reigning, victorious king of life offers you in his, in his hands. Or maybe this morning what you need to be reminded is that Jesus is the coming king of heaven. He is the coming king of heaven. See, this life is not all there is, but what we do in this life, it matters for all eternity. And the question is simply this, are you living for today? Are you living for your glory and the growth of your kingdom? Or are you living with your eyes set on the day in which the true king returns with your life spent for his glory and the expanse of his kingdom and his good kingly rule and reign to all people? You see, you are not the true king of all things. Jesus is, and one day he will come and every eye will see him and there will be mourning. There will be tears on that day. Some of those tears will be great sorrow for those who realize they have spent their lives and given their lives to the purpose of their own kingdom and their own glory. But some of them will be tears of unfathomable joy for those who poured out their lives for the glory of the king who had saved them, and who they knew was coming again. At the very heart of the message of the whole book of Revelation is this message. Live today, live every day in view of that one. Live every day in view of the one day in which the true king returns to consummate his kingdom. See, Jesus, by his spirit, empowers us to do that, not out of fear, not out of duty, not, not out of obligation, but instead out of a joy and out of an eager anticipation that the glorious king might return and set all things right. Ask him to empower you to that end. You see, to some degree, we all need to see Jesus as the sovereign Lord of history, the victorious King of life, and the coming King of eternity. But some of you, again this morning, you need me to remind you again that he is indeed also the beloved King of redemption. Jesus' rebuke of these seven churches will be hard for us to hear at points. And they will ring incredibly true and incredibly close to home I guarantee you it was hard for these original churches to hear these words. But the Lord Jesus is not coming in anger towards his church. He is coming in love for them. You can hear his words of rebuke and correction these next seven weeks and not be full of fear and not be full of guilt and not be full of shame because you know that he loves you and he knows that he longs for your good and he longs to bless you. Verse 3 begins the whole letter. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. 
When I'm disciplining my kids, I always come to them in the midst of my discipline, and I always ask them, Emma, Caleb, do you know that Papa loves you? Yes. How much do I love you? A lot? A little? You love me a lot, Dad. Do you know that I want your good? Yes. Do you know that I want to bless you, that I want your joy, that I would never, ever hurt you? Do you know that that is true? Yes, we know. Because you know that I love you. Because you know I want to bless you. Because you know I want your joy and your good. You can choose to listen and obey. Not out of fear. Not out of duty. Not out of obligation. Out of joy and love. See, some of you grew up in homes where your father was a tyrant or even abusive, and I need you to hear me this morning, that is not the kind of king that Jesus is. He's the kind of king who lays down his life for those under his care, who gave everything so that you and I might have life in him. His redeeming love frees us from the power of sin. It frees us from the the lure of sin in our lives every day, and his love frees us to obey him out of joy and delight. You see, he is the sovereign king of history. He is the victorious king of life. He is the the coming king of heaven, and he is the beloved king of redemption. And so we remember him. It's only when we see him for who he really is that we will be able to respond rightly to his words these next seven weeks. And his words, as we read them throughout Scripture... But it is only when you remember that he is your beloved king of redemption that you'll be able to respond to him not out of fear, but out of love and joy. You must see him as both. You see, and it's his sacrificial, redeeming love towards us that we remember when we take communion. We're reminding ourselves that Jesus' body and blood were broken and shed for us. He willingly gave himself so that we might have peace with God, that we might have hope with him, that we might be one with him. You see, communion does not make you right with God. It does not save you. It does not save your status or your standing with him in any way. Instead, it is an opportunity for us to remember the person and the work of Jesus so that we might be filled with a love and a gratitude for him that overflows in a life lived in obedience unto him. The bread and the juice are in the back. There's a table on your left and on your right. And during our time of worship, you simply go back and dip the bread in the juice as you feel led. And so as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song together, if you have put your trust in Jesus, if he is your savior and your Lord, if he's not just your friend, but he, if he's the reigning, ruling Lord of history in your life, then whenever you're ready, go back, take communion, do it as a joyous celebration, as a reminder that the great king of all history gave himself so that you might know him and be loved by him. But if not this morning, if if Jesus is not yet your Savior and your Lord, I would encourage you to hold off on taking communion. I need you to hear this. You are welcome here. You are welcome here at River City. You are welcome amongst this people. You are welcome in this community. But I would encourage you, instead of coming to the communion table, come instead to Jesus. Come and surrender unto him. Ask him not just to be... uh, 
one who listens well or one who models well, but ask him to be your Savior and Lord, the one in whom you, you give everything to. And so as we take communion, as we sing, talk with God this morning. Ask him to help you see him for who he really is. Ask him to help you see that he is the sovereign Lord of history in whom you can put your trust, in whom your confidence and hope lies in. Ask him to remind you that he is the help you to see that he is the victorious king of life who gives you peace in the midst of chaos. Ask him to remind you that he is the coming king of eternity who gives you hope and a purpose in which to live for. Ask him to remind you that he is the beloved king of redemption in whom you are completely forgiven. Ask him to help you see him for who he really is. So that as we read his words to us, to his church these next seven weeks, you might be able to respond rightly to them. Both in the moment, but also every day of our lives. For our good and joy, but more than anything, for his great glory and his abiding worship in all places. Verse 6 ends this way. For unto him be glory and power forever and ever. Let that be true amongst us as we see him for who he is and respond rightly to his words. Let us pray. King Jesus, we come to you this morning. God, we are so thankful that you would give us a vision of yourself in your glory, in your splendor, in your power, in your might. God, we need to see you in that way. God, we are tempted to shrink you. We are tempted to minimize you. We are tempted to view you in only one compartmentalized way. But King Jesus, we need, to see, we need you to help us to see you for all of who you truly are. Thank you that you came 2,000 years ago to live and die for us. Thank you that you came 90, 90 years later with a message to, to John and the apostles. A message of power and hope in the midst of chaos and turmoil, in the midst of hardship. King Jesus, might the good news of your message given to them be good news unto us these next seven weeks. A good news that empowers us to live rightly unto you every day until your great kingly return. King Jesus, we need you. Help us see you as you really are so that we might respond rightly and live for you. We pray, amen.